Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 7 to 10. Let me read this passage for us as we set this in our minds today. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. The title of today's message is Obedience Even When It Hurts. Obedience Even When It Hurts. We all understand the sense of justice and righteousness when we suffer or are disciplined for doing foolish things, right? Well, when I was in elementary school, uh, I had such an occasion happen of um, maybe not exhibiting the uh, wisdom that I have as an elementary school kid, but it had been raining a lot, and uh, unfortunately, I loved going to the pool during the summertime, and the rain hindered me from being able to go to the pool uh, this specific day. So in my ingenious way, I looked out into the road, and I noticed that there was a nice, large puddle. So I decided to throw on my swim trunks, and I went and sat right in the middle of that puddle. It was muddy. It was messy. I was having the time of my life. Until my loving sister, who always had my best interest in mind, went and told my mom, Cooper's sitting in the middle of the road in a mud puddle. Surely no child of mine would be sitting in the middle of the road in a mud puddle. I'm sure my mother wondered. But she came out and sure enough found me there as the cars were passing by looking and saying, why is that child in a mud puddle in the road? Didn't seem to make a lot of sense. But in my mind, it was fantastic. Got to sit in this mud puddle and didn't get to go to the pool but man, I, I improvised, right? This was great and creative. Well, to my dismay, I was informed about the dangers that that was, and you shouldn't play in the road, number one, much less sit in the middle of a puddle in the road. Um, I showed a, a severe lack of sense that was corrected by my mother through discipline. I needed that instruction, and it was painful. But again, we understand that um, that discipline there was because I was foolish, we understand that there needs to be a sense of correction when we do foolish things. But what about when we don't do foolish things and we go through difficulty? What about disciplining a child who is doing everything right? Is that ever appropriate? Is there a place for discipline in anyone's life when we're not necessarily being disobedient? Is there a place for suffering? And I think any of us in this room that are acquainted with this life is sometimes that certainly is the case. We go through trials and we go through hardships. And sometimes when we obey, difficult things and difficult consequences come about. Certainly we have no less of a great example for us set by somebody who was without sin entirely. But yet he's known as a man from Isaiah 53, refers to him as a man full of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We see the model of Christ. We see his perfect obedience. And yet we see a life filled with suffering, even to the point of death. His was a life of obedience marked out from all others, all other humans that had ever lived. 
but yet he was obedient even to the will of the Father when it cost him everything. What we're going to see tonight is the qualities of Christ found here in Hebrews that is just a profound look at understanding the nature of the role of what our Savior went through, but to also realize that our calling is no less, in a sense, than what his was. That we need to learn what it is to obey the will of God, even though it might cost you everything. In fact, there's three marks of Christ's obedience that we're going to see. Three marks of Christ's obedience that not only allows him for us to learn about his obedience and how we should pattern our lives, Certainly that's significant, but along with this, not only is he the model of obedience, but we need to learn that our obedience is also to reflect and, and to be patterned after what he exemplifies for us. So we're going to see in Christ's obedience and the ultimate result that, that, that his life culminated in, which was accomplishing eternal salvation. Certainly, his obedience and his perseverance and obedience, though it cost him everything, brought about the greatest joy and blessing to this world. But you're going to realize that his pattern that he set for us becomes a model that we follow that also brings about, as we're obedient to him, brings about our ultimate salvation. There's an echo here. There's a pattern that we need to understand the role and the ministry of Jesus Christ to look at his humanity and to see these marks to understand them and to realize that you are also called to the same life. What's the first mark of Christ's obedience? Well, it's found in verse seven. That is reverential prayer. Reverential prayer. In verse seven, we see this, in the days of his flesh, obviously referring to what? When Jesus Christ became, when when God the second person of the Trinity became a man and took on flesh. In the days of that flesh is what the author of Hebrews is referring to here. During the days of his humanity on this earth, here's what characterizes Christ's ministry. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Obviously, if I were to sit here and ask you today, what is one of the defining marks of Christ's ministry in his life on this earth? And it wouldn't have to take long for you to say, well, obviously, I think one of the defining marks of Christ and his ministry is his life of prayer. You see him continually going and withdrawing himself to pray in the midst of big decisions, in the midst of uh, before uh, miracles, before decisions, before um, difficult circumstances. You see Christ withdrawing to go and commune with the Father. His life was continually about offering up prayers to God and aligning himself through prayer to the will of his Father. Now, what's interesting about what the author of Hebrews adds is not only did he exhibit his life through uh, both prayers and supplications, what often described his prayers? Well, you see it here. The author of Hebrews adds that he did so with loud cries and tears. There's a great example. There's a great example and a telling illustration of this type of prayer that we see in Christ before going to the garden or in the garden of Gethsemane before he suffered in death at, at the cross. In Luke 22, and I, I just want to go there so you can see the type of prayer that Christ 
committed himself to before going to the ultimate point of sacrifice and death. His whole life leading to this point, and still you see at this point what God was preparing him for and offering up his life as a ransom for many. You get a beautiful picture of what Christ prayed and a a sense of what his prayer with the Father looked like. We see in Luke 22, verse 40, beginning there, when he arrived at that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter temptation. When you're pressed, when you as a believer in Christ are stressed beyond your circumstances and often don't understand what's going on, do you exhibit this kind of prayer that Christ models for us? The fervent prayer, though knowing what was about to be before him, knowing the agony that he was about to experience because the will of the Father was that he be crushed Could you imagine standing, knowing what was about to happen to you, and what would your temptation be? Probably to think about all the ways that you could avoid having to bear the cup that the Father has for you to drink. Lord, really, is this my lot? Isn't there another way that could be better? What we need to understand is that prayer does not always involve asking about uncertainties. It's not always that we don't know what the will of God is. I think we do oftentimes is that we need to be obedient to his will just like Christ knew that his obedience, what it was about to cost him. But what we see here in prayer is not often praying about things that are unknown but praying about things and learning to be faithful in the midst of what you know you're about to endure. Here we see Christ submitting himself to God's revealed will knowing that it wasn't easy with what he was about to face. He, would, he prayed for, to resist temptation to do it any other way but by what God's will had set in front of him. Can I ask you a question back in Hebrews 5? Why was Jesus' prayer heard? That's a good question that I think the author of Hebrews actually answers for us. Why was Jesus' prayer heard? I mean, number one, do you think it was because of the tears that he cried? I don't think so. Obviously, the author of Hebrews says that he was heard. Certainly, descriptions were that he was crying with loud anguish. But he was heard because of his reverent submission. The NASB says piety. The ESV says reverence. But what's really going on here? This is a rendering of the word for fear, okay? For fear. That is reverence or appropriate awe. Before God. 
And so you ask yourself, what was it that Christ ultimately feared? What overcame his anxiety as he relented and resigned himself to the will of God, even though it was going to mean his death? What was it that he ultimately showed? And the reverence in this word often is accompanied and synonymous with this idea of obedience, resignation and obedience to do what God's asked you no matter what it costs you. So you see this reverence or appropriate awe that Christ had. That ultimately, he feared God, not his own death. Jesus' prayer was not answered simply because of his tears. But these were entirely consistent with the total obedience to the Father. Because again, is it just sometimes when you go to an altar or when you've had experiences where you've cried that really matters? Well, certainly, we have circumstances that happen and life gets difficult that sometimes we do cry, right? Right? Sometimes that is appropriate. But consider this, is that why God would hear you? Well, obviously Esau wasn't heard, right? If you look at Hebrews 12, verses 16 and 17, we realize that prayers, that, that oftentimes repentance sought through tears is not granted because this element that's talked about Christ possessing isn't possessed by those seeking and crying the tears. Esau, in Hebrews 12, 16 and 17, we read this, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, listen to this, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought, it, sought for it with tears. Tears aren't enough. Tears aren't enough. So what do we learn here? What is this reverent submission that Christ had? It was obedience. Jesus learns in this moment how in prayer to align himself with the will of God, yet he does so through prayer and agony, sometimes knowing what it's going to cost him. Jesus knows how it feels to obey when such obedience to God's will only promises further pain. He could and did add to his prayer in Luke 22 that we just saw, yet not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus learned obedience when every fiber of his being longed to escape, longed to take maybe the, an easier way out. Instead of seeking for another way and trying to create another way, he submitted himself to the will of his father. Do you realize that what it says here in Hebrews 5, is the text doesn't actually say that Christ prayed to be saved out of death. Isn't that interesting? He didn't pray to be saved out of death, but what did he pray? He prayed to the one able to save him out of death. Do you see the difference? When we live life outside of obedience and faith in God, we end up fearing our circumstances that could cost us greatly, and we get emotional and fully occupied about those things in those circumstances. Jesus wasn't praying about the death he was about to incur, but he was praying to be saved out of death to the one who has the power to do so. This is faith and obedience. Jesus constantly was going back and withdrawing himself to the perfect trust of the Father and the acceptance of the Father's will regardless of the cost and without trying to alter it. 
so. What a great model of obedience. Resigning yourself and aligning yourself to the will of God, even though it might cost you greatly. This is the model of prayer that Christ exhibits for us. Is this how you pray? We often seek to have our will be done, and we just hope that God is going to grant us that. We ask with those kind of motives. But yet we miss, like Esau does too many times, sorrow over our circumstances without really finding the joy and comfort that knowing that God works all things together for the good of those that love him and believe that his perfect providential plan and what you're currently going through can give him the greatest glory. We think we know of a better way and an easier way. But what Christ exhibits for us is God intends the greatest glory through the greatest sacrifice. So is your prayer life about reverentially praying and submitting yourself to the Father's will regardless of what it costs you? We need to be faithful in prayer to have such qualities and this mark of obedience just like Christ had. Why? Why do we need to align ourselves in such a way? And why is this mark of obedience so pivotal? Because we are promised that second point. Not only that we should be reverentially in prayer and seeking to be obedient to God's will as we conform our thoughts with the Lord's thoughts and communing with him, but we need to arm ourselves as a mark of obedience just as Christ had through relentless suffering. We see in verse 8 a profound statement in regards to this. In this mark of obedience, verse 8 in, in Hebrews 5, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I mean, this is a key argument to the entire thought that the author of Hebrews has been driving, not only here, but the entirety of Hebrews. It's surprising for what it says in such a stark brevity, but it draws out the significance of the previous verse that we just read. In other words, the process of learning to obey God in the face of suffering not not only meant align yourself to the will of God, but the fact that we also can, if, if Christ endured suffering, so will you. The process of learning to obey God in the face of suffering was necessary even for the Son of God. How necessary is, is it for us to as well learn how to draw ourselves to prayer to this Father? Now what's going on here? Who is this Son? Although he was a Son, what does that mean? Well, the author of Hebrews has spent no short amount of time basing his entire argument about the sonship of Christ, the great theology about who Christ is as the Son of God. And the significance of that is no short amount of great theology. You see in verse 5, the fact that he says, Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is based out of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a profound psalm where the foundation of the theology regarding who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God becomes plainly known. Who is this Son? Well, let's talk about this for a second. Psalm 2, uh, let's go there. In the original context, Psalm 2 speaks about the rebellion of the nations of this world. Psalm 2 talks about here, obviously, how the nations and the rulers of this world want to break away from the authority of God. Not only in the sense of uh, they don't want his rule over him, in the sense of God the Father, but God the Son, the anointed one, the Son that God has set up to be the ruler over them. This world refuses to submit to him as they should. 
what we're going to see is the, the power to crush and judge such evil actions, to not want to submit to the power of God, is going to be dealt with swiftly and powerfully at the hands of the beloved son whom God has set up to be king in Zion. The overwhelming power of this king that God has set up. And so I'm going to read this psalm, and I want to show you that this psalm is speaking about the sonship of Christ and his role as he's going to come and claim rulership over the nations of this world and consider the warning that they're given concerning this great person and the glory that surrounded who he is. Psalm 2 begins, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Doesn't that describe our age? It's still this way. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together. And what are they united on? Our world is certainly full of great animosity, but there's one thing that unifies the entire world against one purpose, and that's this. They're united against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, let's break away the authority from God. And what's God's response to this? The sovereign, majestic Lord who holds all these things in his hands. He who sits in the heavens laughs, The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And here's our quote from Hebrews 5. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, in reference to the king that he set up to be the ruler over these nations. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And here's the warning about this great son that God has set up to be king over all. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. There's our reverence word. Obedience that Christ exhibited, aligning yourself to the will of God, not breaking away the authority of him, but submitting to his authority. Worship the Lord with that kind of reverence and rejoice with trembling. And here's your admonition. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath, whose wrath? The son may soon be kindled. And look at this, comfort. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This sonship of Christ is exactly what the author of Hebrews has been bringing to bear. There's no one like him. He was supreme over all. No angel has ever received this position. This is a title that God has promised. Well, he's gonna set up his king and he's gonna bring ultimate justice into the world. And we know who this king is. And of course, Christ in his earthly ministry is described as the son of God. He is the fulfiller of these things. Take refuge in him. Obviously, we're longing. This promise is coming through the Davidic line. Christ is going to set up that kingdom, and Christ is going to be the helm when he returns again to conquer these nations, and this is going to be enacted that we see in Psalm 2. So this psalm displays a resounding confession of the Lord's support of his son. He's going to set him up, and even though this world doesn't want to submit to him, God has set up his king to be exalted. So, 
It's on that idea of sonship that the author of Hebrews has been using about you don't want to cross this guy. You need to take refuge in him. You need to believe on him as the son of God whom God has set up to be ruler over all. So back in Hebrews, we realize that if his sonship has been so expounded here in this book that we might expect or might have expected that the one who has been granted all the kingdoms of the world and who has the name above every name, that he would get a pass from suffering. Surely there would be another way that this king would be set up with great privileges and he shouldn't have to suffer to enter into that kingdom. But we realize that he doesn't get a pass. And in fact, we're promised along with scripture that if all those that are adopted be sons of God are promised that we're gonna suffer and go through difficulty. Later, the author of Hebrews, in fact, in chapter 12, is going to address his readers as sons of God that are also being disciplined as Christ was through suffering to bring about God's ultimate purposes. And it says believers suffer and go through difficulties and you remain obedient that God is glorified in the midst of this world that wants to break away from his authority. But what's different between Jesus and us? Because it's not as though Like us, we suffer sometimes because we do foolish things. And it's not as though Jesus had been previously disobedient ever at his life. And he now needs to understand what it means to obey the will of God and what that's going to cost him. No. Instead, what does the author of Hebrews say in chapter 5 again? Although he was a son, although he was the divine king that God has set up, he learned obedience through what he suffered. What does it mean to learn obedience? Well, obviously, this helps understand what we just read in verse 7 about the reverent awe that Christ had. But obviously, this is explaining that to learn obedience means to come to fully appreciate what conforming to God's will involves. Christ's obedience to the will of God, no matter what it cost him, is what is central to this idea. And you need to understand something. That if you're a child of God, if you're going through difficult circumstances, you need to realize that authentic obedience that is found to be faithful to Christ is one that is practiced not necessarily when life is easiest, but when it is most difficult. Authentic obedience is practiced not necessarily when life is easiest, but when it is most difficult. Now, this flies in the face of our comfort, easygoing culture, doesn't it? We seek life to be easiest as opposed to being faithful and obedient no matter the cost to the will of God. So we compromise. We take the easy way out. By the way, because of our unfaithfulness in such a way, this renders any of us, any human that's ever existed, incapable of being the source of eternal salvation like Christ is going to be declared to be in a minute. If Christ is not faithful and overcome temptation fully, we would have no hope of salvation. But yet we see Christ and the ultimate example of suffering and obedience through suffering Jesus encountered the most animosity, the most difficult situations that any human could ever face 
with moment-by-moment obedience to the will of God, no matter what it was going to cost him, all the way to the point of death. He remained obedient to the will of God. His faithfulness to the Father was challenged. His unfailing obedience to the Father's will was tested again and again and again, and he never relented or gave up for one moment. And he alone becomes the hope because of his perfection to be able to make intercession, to become our high priest, as the author of Hebrews says, to intercede for those who aren't, can't bring that type of obedience to God. What Jesus learned then by his obedience is how greatly being obedient to the will of God actually is. Have you been walking with the Lord any number of time? And have you come to that same realization? But sadly, too, often, unlike Christ, perfect obedience, do we falter and mistrust God and his goodness and what he's allowed us to endure we fall flat on our faces and give in to temptation and sin. He learned by experiencing suffering and death the price that full obedience to the will of God can exact. But do you realize that this is the same call that if you want to come after Christ, that you're met with as well? That if you wish to come after him, what must you do? Christ says it himself, right? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow him. Follow his example. Follow the pattern of obedience to the will of God no matter what it costs you. This is the call of true discipleship and if you want to be one of Christ's disciples, this is going to become the mark and the characteristic of your life is a willingness to be obedient to God no matter what it costs you. When you're met with difficulty, when you're met with circumstances that seem to be on your control, too often we neglect the first step, we don't pray as we should, so that we wouldn't enter temptation, then we're tempted and we fall because our circumstances are overwhelming, there's much we can learn from Christ in the sense of submitting ourselves and aligning ourselves in obedience to God, knowing that relentless suffering is also the cross that we also have to bear. Now the cups that we all drink are different, right? Not all of us suffer the same way. But not all of us are meant to also bear the sins of the world as Christ did. That's not what our cross necessarily looks like. But just as his cross led to his death and the ultimate glorification of God the Father, bringing about salvation for all those that would believe on him. But so now, our task is to be obedient and to share in the sufferings of Christ. To be identified with him and to give great glory to God in the greater purposes of the culmination of all things. He had reverential prayer, do you? He had relentless suffering. Are you marking obedience in the midst of these things? Are you reluctantly giving into temptations? Because what you also need to know is that not only did Christ have this reverential prayer, not only did he have relentless suffering and he becomes a mark of obedience that accomplished the eternal salvation, but you need to realize that the culminating point and the culminating mark of obedience results in this. The reception of salvation. That the same way that Christ was glorified is not that much different than the way that those who are to believe and obey him 
will ultimately receive salvation. We see in verse 9, in being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all obey him. So the question arises again, how was Jesus made perfect or brought to completeness? Well, this word here refers to this perfected idea. And if you were to put a book in between uh, what period of time this is talking about, clearly it goes all the way from Christ's birth into the human condition all the way to his exaltation when things were completed through his passion and exaltation. We see that all of his obedience and all that he did and the perfect obedience in the way that God ultimately glorified him was through his life of obedience and all that he suffered brought to the completed point where he said, it is finished on the cross. It was a whole life marked by obedience. I mean, what's amazing is we have seen on the one hand how Jesus' experience was designed to acquaint us with him in the human condition so that he could identify with us as a great high priest, so he could be sympathetic to how difficult this life is. He knows above anyone else because he never gave in like we do. He experienced temptation to the fullest measure unlike us because we too often are too weak and give in instead of living obediently to the will of God. But here we see another side. If he doesn't have perfect obedience, if he didn't endure what he did, then he wouldn't have been prepared to be the ultimate sacrifice and the sacrificial lamb through perfect obedience to bring about the salvation for those that would believe on him. Because of Christ's every moment of obedience, all of the human race can be forgiven before God because of Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. He becomes the source of eternal salvation because of his perfect obedience. See, he became what? What did he become? What did his perfect obedience accomplish for him? The source of eternal salvation. Who are those that, by the way, are recipients of this eternal salvation spoken of. How does the author of Hebrews in verse eight or verse nine, pardon me, who are those that receive such an eternal salvation? Who are they said to be here? Having been made perfect, he became to all those who what? Obey him. He is the source of eternal salvation for all those who also reverentially worship and love him. How do we know we love Christ? You obey his commandments. This is Christianity 101. To those who Christ benefits with his eternal salvation are all those who obey him. So you want to follow him again. It comes back to that paradigm. You want to come after Christ? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. What is your end going to be? Maybe not crucifixion like Christ is. What's the cup he has for you to drink? And are you enduring in this life, submitting yourself and aligning yourself to the will of God so that you can suffer well as your Savior did? We need to look to Christ as not only the model of what it is to suffer well and to be obedient to the will of God no matter what it costs you, but you also need to look to Christ in the sense that he is the author and perfecter of your salvation and there's no other place you can look to understand how you can be reconciled to God but through him. 
Isn't this what Hebrews 12 teaches us? Look there with me. Here, the reference is going to be to the great cloud of witnesses who, through their faith and obedience, suffer and are cost, everything, cost them everything in life in Hebrews 11. You can go home today and read that and just realize what faith and obedience have cost all those who believe on God. It cost us greatly. But we come here to the ultimate example in Hebrews 12, where we see this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. That is, whatever is keeping you from obedience to God, if it's just something that's not inherently sinful, like encumbrances, things that are making you stumble over um, the actual obedience that you should have, what's preventing you from that? It might not be something inherently sinful, but it's something that's keeping you from being obedient to the will of God as you should. Get rid of it, it says here. And sin, yeah, so if there's sin, known sin in your life, you need to deal with that because that's gonna completely ensnare you like a trap and bait set for an animal and a hunter. Sin entangles you and keeps you from being obedient as well as hindrances that keep you from running the races you should. Throw those things off. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And what is the model for us? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that authored it. He's the one that models it. But he's also the source of our salvation. All of this is wrapped up in this idea of the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the model. He's also the ultimate source of it. Consider him, look at this, who for the joy set before him endured what? The cross. Despising the shame, certainly. Doesn't mean the circumstances we face are going to be always filled with like, oh, wow, how great you are. No, not at all. Oftentimes what we have to suffer means shame for us because we're aligning ourselves to the will of God and that is foolishness to this world. But see, guys, endurance and running the race is what ultimately landed in this last phrase here. Because of those things and his race that he ran, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that what? You will not grow weary and lose heart. Christ learned obedience through what he suffered. Being obedient to the will of the Father brought him greater glory and greater glory and greater glory until it was finished. Now we see that those who are obedient to the will of Christ will receive the same end. Certainly in a different capacity, Christ is the source of these things. We are recipients of these things. But yet this is what the marks of obedience results in our life. And in Hebrews 5, this incredible truth and the readers that he's addressing need to be issued a warning. Why? Well, because much about Christ's priesthood, he wants to say in verse 10, wish we could get onto the things discussing the orders of Melchizedek, which he will in chapter 7, by the way. Concerning much about Christ and this relationship of his priesthood and all that he's accomplished, we have much to say about. But look what he says. It's hard to explain. Why? 
because it's difficult theology and there's words here you might not understand. That's not what he says at all. No, the difficulty is not in the content. The problem is with the hearers. Since you have become dull of hearing. They become lazy in hearing. They were under pressure, certainly, to abandon their faithfulness and obedience to Christ because, yes, they were threatened with great persecutions. Their property was being taken away. They were being imprisoned. Certainly a lot more types of suffering than what we face today. And in the face of that, they had become lazy in thinking about the greatness of this Christ and who he is set up to be and also considering the pattern that he set as the model for what they should also do in their obedience. They'd become lazy of hearing. Certainly, these believers shouldn't be ashamed of their suffering, but they should realize that in the midst of their suffering, God is working all things together for his glorious purposes. And they needed to align themselves, just like Christ did in Gethsemane, to the will of the Father, no matter what it costs them. Because in that, God receives the greatest glory. Isn't it appropriate, though? And the fact that the salvation, which was procured or attained by the obedience of the Redeemer, should be made available to the obedience of the redeemed. That in the same way that Christ models for us obedience, so we must also obey Him, no matter the cost. He hasn't left for us anything but a great example, the best, the most preeminent example. I pray that today as you face difficulty and uncertainty, suffering, and as you struggle to know whether or not you should be obedient to the will of God, even though it might cost you greatly, that you would consider Christ and consider your obedience and relationship to what you've been exhorted to today and that you would align yourself to the will of God Because those who do so are those that are granted from the eternal source of salvation, the salvation that we've been promised in Christ. Is it worth it? Can you endure all of life's troubles and conflict? Or are you going to be like me and sit in a mud puddle in the road? Trust me, in that day, Far worse than being found, little thing like sitting in a mud puddle. But what little thing will you give in exchange for your soul? There's no greater, more weightier realization that you need to come to today but to repent and throw off the sins and hindrances and run the race, fixing your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of all that is yours. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, too often we find that we do suffer because of our own foolishness, and too little do we suffer because we actually are doing the difficult things of being obedient to your will. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us the minds and comprehension of what your will is in the midst of all that we will face in this life. Lord, always looking to your beloved Son, whom you've set up over all, the name above all names that we would learn to bring honor 
and glory to your name through what we suffer as modeled by him and him alone. Father, I pray that one day as we stand before him, we'll be found as obedient children and you'll say to us, well done. Lord, I pray that we would have these marks of obedience in our life and that we would suffer well as we seek to be obedient to your will no matter the cost. It's for Christ and his glory alone. Amen.